Good evening, everyone. Good to have you with us tonight. But I got to tell you, you guys were slow in getting here. <laughs> Normally, I'm just excited to see everybody coming and just a few here, but it's okay. You're all here now. All right. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 33. Ezekiel 33. Uh Ezekiel 33. We are pressing on in our study of this wonderful prophecy. It's really a heavy-duty prophecy. It has been for as long as we've been in it. We're finding as we move along in this book that uh, uh, more and more we see how the things that are happening in our world today are becoming clearer and clearer through not only this prophecy, the prophecy of Ezekiel, but also all the, all the prophets, major and minor prophets. And uh, the whole idea of, of understanding what the prophets have written is not just to gain a foothold historically in what's been going on in the Bible, and the scriptures, but how it all applies to us now. And, and certainly, you know, as we look at the condition of the world today, uh, there's no doubt that, uh, uh, the, that the word of God is, is reliable because it, it uh, uh, not only the things that Jesus himself has said that have been so clear that the last days were going to be like, but clear that... Um, that the things that we are expecting to happen can happen anytime soon. And so the stirring has to be in our hearts as to how should we then live. And I mentioned that particular phrase because that's a phrase we find here in the book of Ezekiel. Let's look at the first five verses of chapter 33, and then we'll kind of look at an overview of where we've been and where we're going. Again, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people, and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon a land, if the people of the land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchman, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and Taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took not warning, his blood shall be upon him. But he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul. Now, to all who may be able to remember as far back as, as chapter 3 and all of chapter 18... 
then you might notice the similarities found in those chapters with what we have with, with, with what we have before us here in chapter 33. It, it is oftentimes a, a curious thing to some people why some instruction is duplicated, especially in prophetic passages dealing with the theme of judgment. But one thing can be sure, that when the Lord repeats himself, it is so his truth might be impressed upon our hearts and our minds. Oftentimes we, we see repetitions in words or in phrases, and sometimes in, in chapters, as we'll, we'll see a little bit here tonight. We often say that God is holy, but when we see Isaiah chapter 6 and we see the vision that God has given Isaiah and the, the angels are crying, holy, 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 we realize the utmost importance of that word upon the person of God himself. In, in his holy temple, being worshipped and being praised. So repetition in, in any form, whether it be in word or in phrase or in larger passages, is to help us to grab hold of those truths and see the importance of them. Uh, we see it in, in the things that Jesus himself taught. Verily, verily, I say unto you. Rather than one verily, he tells us two. Verily, verily, truthfully, truthfully, I say to you. That means perk up your ears and listen. Perk up your eyes, your hearts, your minds, and listen to what I have to say. So I believe we all would admit to the fact that it is so easy to forget divine principles found in the scriptures and then just let them slip a bit from our memories. So <laughs> I'm learning something about getting older is that I forget a lot more things at, <laughs> at my age, but... But repetition, as I've always said, is a pretty good teacher. Repetition is always a good teacher. And so when we find repetition in the Word of God, we do well to give those passages our most careful consideration. So as we begin our study in chapter 33, we're now in the last major division of this prophetic book of Ezekiel. As a point of review, chapters 1 through 24 dealt with the reason for God's judgment on Israel. Israel, of course, had disobeyed God. Israel had, re had rejected somewhat of the, the truth of God's word about the things that were going to happen if, if, if they had turned from him. And so because they had been warned time and time again, it got to the, fact, it got to the point that they were now going to face not only judgment, but they were going to face um, uh, captivity, and then, of course, spend time away from the land. They'll be kicked out of the land, taken, in this particular case, to Babylon. Now, remember that all of Israel has suffered. When the kingdom was divided, the northern kingdom was taken into captivity uh, in Assyria. Or, uh, the Assyrians had uh, come and, uh, and, and taken the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, a few years before the southern kingdom, which actually had more of the opportunity to do right things because there were good kings and bad kings in the southern kingdom, but it seemed that the bad kings uh, uh, you know, seemed to rule a little bit more, and therefore at, at that time God said uh, it was time for them to go into judgment, and they went, of course, into Babylon. Now, remember that Ezekiel was one of those that had gone to Babylon 
So he was one of those prophets where he was a, what's called a, a, an exilic, exilic prophet or a, a prophet of the exile. And, uh, and then yet at the same time, he was pre-exilic because it was, there was an exile that was yet to come. And of course that was coming because of the, of, of the destruction of, of Jerusalem, the final destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. So that's chapters 1 through 24 dealing with the reasons for God's judgment. Uh, chapters 25 through 32 dealt with God's judgment on the Gentile nations. So uh, we went through that whole list from, from that particular chapter in chapter 25, uh, dealing with you know, the nations that uh, certainly had come against Israel, but nonetheless they were being judged certainly for their, their idolatry and, and so on and so forth, Ammon and Moab and uh, Tyre and Sidon and uh, Egypt, of course, and, uh, and all the other nations that are mentioned in that particular passage. And then chapters 33, which, which is what we're starting now, this last section of the book of Ezekiel, down through chapter 48, the last chapter, we'll speak on and about God's restoration of blessing on Israel. Now, in effect, when you see when you see the book of Ezekiel from from the first chapter to the end, you realize that there's there's a pattern here. Uh, God has warned His people; His people disobey God. God has to bring judgment, but because of His love for His people and because of the promises that He made to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the restoration is also having to take place. Therefore, these last chapters are dealing with the restoration of Israel. And that's a very important thing, not only for the time after the, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem, but in fact, it is for our time as well. Because remember that prophecy always works in this particular manner, that there were near prophecies for the time, and then there were prophecies that were for a, a later time, the far-reaching prophecies that would uh, actually affect the times in which we live in today. We know that because of the nation of, because of, the nation of Israel uh, today. And uh, we see how God has, has restored that nation. And, and in fact, when we get to chapter 37, uh, we're going to deal with the, uh, actually the uh, raising up of the, uh, of the the bones, uh, you know, it's that uh, that chapter dealing with the the bones that God raises up and it becomes an, a nation again. Uh, so uh, we can apply that. Uh, actually, we will when we get there to the uh, to the rise of the Jewish nation after the Holocaust. Uh, but again, we'll we'll deal that, with that then. But as for this chapter, the Lord here, chapter thirty three begins. By reminding Ezekiel of his role as a watchman. And this is what's being repetitive here. This is what is the repetition uh, that we find in the book of Ezekiel. Uh, the prophet was initially commissioned as a watchman by the Lord in chapter 3. In fact, uh, we can read a lot more of chapter 3, but in verse 17 it says, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. Uh, one thing that we can say about Ezekiel as a watchman is that he was a faithful watchman. He did everything that God told him to do. He obeyed God uh, implicitly. And so he kept his, he kept his, uh, uh, his, his position as, as a prophet 
very, very um, uh, faithfully. And what we see here in chapter 33 is God actually recommissioning Ezekiel as a watchman. It, it is important to remember that this is being done after Jerusalem has been judged and destroyed by the Babylonians. Now, we're going to find here in this chapter that there is, a little later, but there is a word that finally comes that, uh, you know, a person that had been in Jerusalem has finally come out to the exile and said, this is what has happened. But we already know that it's happened because we, we, have, uh, we have looked at the dates that uh, Ezekiel has given to us. And these are the dates that coincide with the destruction of Jerusalem. So it happens that, remember, they didn't have real time. They didn't have Wi-Fi. They didn't have a TV. They didn't have, you know, whatever to get the news. So the news had to travel kind of slowly to them. So we'll see that uh, actually in, um, at the, uh, toward the end. And it may, it may not be today that we'll get to it. But uh, it is important to remember that this is being done after Jerusalem has already been judged and destroyed. So now Ezekiel is speaking to the exiles in Babylon more directly now, and, and eventually he'll be speaking to them concerning the restoration of the nation of Israel. So remember again that that is the hope. There's always a hope. Uh, the Jewish uh, or the uh, Israeli national anthem is called Hatikva, and that just simply means the hope. And that is what they sing about, and they sing, with, sing it with a lot of pride, and, but they, they sing with a lot of humility, too, because it is something that is ingrained in them as a modern nation, but they realize where they've come from. And it isn't just, uh, you know, being born in 1948 as a nation, but going all the way back as far as, of course, uh, the biblical times. So the hope is, is, is always going to be evident and is always going to be out front as far as the Lord is concerned because of his desire to restore them as a nation. So um, of course a restored nation like Israel was to become would have to undergo a drastic rebirth if it were to once again be blessed by God because they were in no real good condition quite yet. Uh, in fact of course the Jerusalem's destroyed the, uh, the exiles themselves, the ones that were living in Babylon, were still listening to all of the old and, uh, and I should say the false prophets that had kept telling them, you know, that, you know, listen, everything's going to be fine. We're not going to be in, we're not going to be in, uh, in captivity much longer. So, you know, just don't, don't build your houses in Babylon because God's going to rescue us, you know. But God was very, very clear. He says, no, you're going to be there 70 years, so get comfortable, get in there, and build your houses. And this was one of the fights that the people were having because there were some of those false prophets still telling them that in Babylon itself. So uh, just, I'm just trying to lay, uh, continuing to lay the, the uh, you know, the, uh, the scene here for you as we're, we're seeing what Ezekiel is doing. Because there was a time, if you remember back in chapter 24, we, we had read where God had actually told him to stop, you know, this prophecies to, to them. That's why the, the next few chapters had to do with judgments of the nations. But eventually here in chapter 33, he begins to speak to the exiles again. So uh, he's about to begin this new series of messages, Ezekiel is, and the Lord reminded him that he was God's watchman. And although Ezekiel's messages were to focus primarily on the Lord and his promises of, uh, 
of a glorious future for God's people, he had to continually warn the people of the danger of failing to follow the Lord and to live righteously. See, and, and this is a point that we, we cannot take lightly. If he speaks about the hope, he also has to keep reminding them, but you need to live right. And if you're not doing the right thing, you're, you're going to be judged again. So the, the, the fact of the matter is, think about that in our day and time. We talk a lot about all of these uh, passages of scripture that are encouraging us to keep looking up because Jesus can come at any moment. But the fact of the matter is, he, he can come at any moment, but are you going to be ready when he comes? Are you, are you going to be ready to be taken, uh, you know, with him? And, and, you know, the dead in Christ shall be ra uh, raised first, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with him. Well, yeah, that's going to be great, but you know what? We have to be living godly and righteously in the present age. That's the encouragement that we're given in Titus. That's the encouragement we're given throughout the, the letters to, to Timothy. And certainly when you read 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, you know, that, that, that continues to be, uh, uh, you know, these are, these, are, these are passages that deal with the coming of Jesus Christ, especially 1 Thessalonians. Every chapter in 1 Thessalonians ends with, with the understanding that the Lord's coming. So everything in between is saying, hey, let's get right with the Lord every day because he can come today. And Paul was one who, who, who believed that. If Paul believed it back then, how should we be believing it today? The only problem is that we've had scoffers that are saying, where's the promise of his coming? Well, it's, here, it's right here in the scripture, so be ready. See, why do we, why do we even scoff at, at it? Unless we have some desire for ourselves to do something, you know, fleshly in this life. So what we need to do is get our life right so that we can live right before the Lord comes. It makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, because we have a holy God, right? We have a holy God who loves his people, but he wants his people to be right before him. This is why righteousness is important, why godliness is important, why humbling ourselves uh, and, and, and uh, dying to self every day. Why? So that our hearts will be right with God when he comes. All right, so... The duty of the watchman then is to preach both the love and justice of God. Both the glorious future promised to believers and, to the, and the ter terrifying judgment that will fall upon unbelievers. And so what begins here in chapter 33 is a series of messages that will emphasize God's promise of a glorious future. But it will also include a warning to all who continue to live their lives wickedly and in rejection of God and of his Messiah. So verses 1 through 5, which we read earlier, are a recap of the seriousness of the watchman's call, who was to remain alert and observant, keeping his eyes focused on the horizon as he looked for signs of danger. That's what watchmen did, and that's what watchmen do. And we need to be watchmen in this day and time. Uh, the people's survival depended upon the watchman being responsible. However, when, uh, once the faithful watchman blew the trumpet of warning, when he finally warns the people because he sees the danger approaching, he had fulfilled his responsibility. He had fulfilled it. And then it was the people's responsibility to heed the warning. Uh, those who ignored the warning would die. And their, and their death would be their own fault. Tragically, if they had heeded the warning, they would have lived. 
Now, if the watchman was irresponsible and failed to warn the people of an approaching danger, two things would happen. Let's look at verse 6 now, Ezekiel 33, verse 6. I went over the first five verses real quickly because, again, we've, all, we've gone through the watchman passages there in chapter 3 as well as uh, the, the things that the watchman is supposed to do in chapter 18. But here in verse 6 it says, But if the watchman see the sword come, and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come, and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. Why? Because the watchman didn't blow the horn. The watchman didn't blow the trumpet. So first of all, the people would die because of the watchman's unfaithful, irresponsible behavior. Secondly, the, the Lord would hold the watchman responsible for their deaths. Now we have actually seen this in our studies through Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel as the false prophets refused to warn the people of God's coming judgment and the judgment came. So you see there, there, are, there, are, there are good prophets and yet the prophets still have to be responsible to give the people exactly what God gives them. There are false prophets even today that are going about with their false prophecies, thinking that they're warning, not so much warning people, because the false prophets don't do a lot of warning. What they do is, is a lot of, you know, kind of appeasing, as it were. Think about one of the major prophecies of the end times. When you hear them say what? Peace and safety, then what? Sudden destruction comes. <laughs> That's a, it's a false prophecy. What is the world seeking after today? At least from the world's terms, peace. We're going to have peace. But is there peace? No. And one of the things that the Antichrist is going to bring about is some kind of a false peace. This is something that we see actually uh, kind of made clear to us in the, in the four horsemen that we find in the book of Revelation, uh, chapter 6. Begins with a horseman on a white horse, uh, in white, with a bow with no arrow, because that says peace, but still, it's, it's a deception. The peace of the world is a deception. So, we go on here in the, in the next verse, because it says, So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel, therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. We hear the word at his mouth. Uh, in other words, we are to teach everything that is God's word. Everything. What is that for us today? That's the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. That's what we are supposed to teach. We're not to go look and say, well, you know, I, 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 don't, I really don't know much about this, so we're not going to read this book or that book you know you know which one when which which one of the books in the scriptures is the most uh, overlooked is the book of revelation and yet when you read the book of revelation it tells us that if you read it you get a blessing from it so why are you trying to keep people from the blessing of, of the book of revelation by saying well we don't understand this word i'm going to study it and yet when when we studied it what about a year or so ago that uh, we were just amazed at, at the things that we see happening in the book of Revelation that's happening today. 
setting up for what's going to happen in the very near future. So the Lord reminded the prophet that he had chosen him to be his watchman, and this reminder was essential for the, ex- for the exiles who were heartbroken. They were heartbroken over their situation and, and in desperate need of encouragement. But the prophet still needed to keep God's call close to his heart, continuing to be responsible, continuing to be faithful, not only by encouraging the people, but also by warning them of God's coming judgment. Notice verses 8 and 9. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Now, it would be good for a moment to say that, that too often, some people take certain Old Testament words and attempt to make them into New Testament doctrine. Now, there are those who have read into this passage that if we don't warn people, we can lose our salvation, as it were. That's what they read into this. If the watchman doesn't warn, then you lose out. You know, I can't accept this for even a minute. Because if this were true, then our salvation would be based upon our works instead of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. So we have to understand it from that perspective. So then how does this apply to us today? While we do have the responsibility of speaking forth the word of God, even those things that are difficult, like the book of Revelation and the prophets and other books, but those things that may not be politically correct. This is one of the major things that we deal with today, you know, in the church of Jesus Christ. You know, and I I often talk about this thing called the visible church. You, You often heard me say that, the visible church. It's just everybody that seems to look like, smell like, and taste like, you know, believers in Jesus Christ. Worldwide, you know, globally. The visible church is what people will see. And many times, especially in this day and age, they're they're not really following the word of God, but they're following some, some rite or some ritual or some ceremony And then that is called Christianity. The Bible speaks of, not in in this term, but speaks of something called the invisible church. The invisible church would actually be those that really are only known by God to be his. He knows them exactly because they have come directly to him. They have confessed with their mouth the Lord Jesus. They believe in their heart that he's risen from the dead and therefore they shall be saved. And their hearts are changed. Their lives are changed. They have the spirit of God in them to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. They receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit and they, and, and they give thanks and, uh, to God. They receive the gifts of the spirit. They go serve the Lord in, in, that, in that capacity. But a lot of times we don't get seen. Until we get to someone and tell them about Jesus Christ. So there is this particular difference. Now, 
The visible church is very large. It is called Christendom, so Christendom is very large. The true church of Jesus Christ is not so large. Because then again, there are those who say they're believers, but God only knows their hearts. So with that in mind, why is it then today that we see a lot of churches, quote-unquote churches, that are putting aside the word of God, you, you, you've heard me say that a lot. We put aside, they, they put aside the word of God and they follow after certain social trends and say, well, we need to be tolerant of these things and need to be accepting, accepting of, of, of people. If we can, you know. and, and the fact of the matter is, see, you know, when it comes to political correctness and all of that, people will say, well, you guys teach the Bible, so you probably, you probably hate everybody who doesn't go, believe the way you do. Doors are, are, are never closed when we, you know, when we meet for, for our meetings. The doors are always open for people to come, but we're going to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. We're going to tell the truth. So it is tragic that even in many churches today, there are those who will, who will not speak out against sin. They'll not speak out against homosexuality. They'll not speak out against immoral lifestyle simply because those things tend to offend people. They're worried about offending people. There are churches today that want to have quote-unquote conversations with Muslims and, and Hindus and, and Buddhists and say, well, we can get the best of, out of all of what they have, you know, because don't we all believe in the same God anyway? When I hear that, I realize they haven't read the word of God at all. There's only one God. There's only one God. And he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So why is this happening? Consider one thing. Proverbs 29, verse 25. In this particular proverb, it says, The fear of man bringeth a snare. When we start fearing man and start fearing what man thinks and what man says about what we might believe, when we start fearing that, then that, that brings a snare. It entraps us. But whoso putteth his trust in the Lord shall be safe. No matter what anybody says about us, no, no matter what anybody might do to us, if we stand on the truth of Jesus Christ and we stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ and we stand on the word of God from Genesis to Revelation, which includes the very fact that we believe everything that the word of God says <clears throat> from Genesis to Revelation, that God created the heav heavens and the earth in, in six full 24-hour days because that's what the word of God says. Why do I need to argue with that? Well, that just doesn't make any sense scientifically. Well, hey, God created science, so I'm going to trust in him. He's not against science. God created it. The fact of the matter is, if he created the world in six, in six days, then he has the power to do whatever he wants to do. And therefore, when Paul says that the dead in Christ shall be raised first, and then we who are alive shall be caught up together with them, and we'll be with the Lord in the air, if he, if he can create the world in six, you know, and, and the universe in six full 24-hour uh, days, then he can certainly do that. Or as we studied just recently in, in John, uh, Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth. And what? <laughs> Lazarus came forth. He who was dead for four days was now alive. And people saw it. There were eyewitnesses. And we have the account in the scriptures. 
So obviously there are, there are pastors and there are ministers who are more concerned with being popular, maybe with, with fitting in with, uh, you know, with, with, with the times and the trends and keeping big tithers coming to the church that they water down the word of God. Uh, we can't water down the word of God. Take, for example, what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4. He says, I charge thee, therefore, before God. Now, those are very serious words when, when Paul says, I charge you. You know, when we get charged with something in, the, in this day and time, you know, so we were charged maybe with a crime or we're charged with, you know, so, I mean, they still have to prove it and all, but, but a charge is a serious word to somebody. I'm giving you a charge. A, a person who's a boss of someone says, this is what I want you to do. That's a charge. A military uh, higher up will tell someone below him, this is what I want you to do. This is what I want you to prepare your men for. This is a, a charge. And he says, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing. Now notice how Paul has brought in the issue of what takes place in the end, which is judgment. And the just God is going to bring forth his judgments soon. The Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick or the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. He says, because of this, preach the word. Be instant or ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and doctrine. Now, are those things evil things to do to people? No, they're corrections. They're saying, listen, get this right in your life. Why were prophets raised up? Why were the apostles raised up? To let the people know what God's word says about us so that we can get ourselves into God's kingdom in the right and proper way. Preach the word. So give forth the word. Proclaim, declare the word of God. And then he says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That sounds like today. But after their own lusts, see, there's always that. There's always that. You know, we're, we're, we're going after something because it's inside of us to want something rather than what God says is best for us. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears. Some people want, uh, you know, to get rich and prosperous and there have been all of those charlatans on I mean for time and eternity I mean there have been all those guys going around telling people you know well you you can get rich because that's what the Bible says you should be doing you know so they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables so the apostle Paul has spent three years three years with the church in Ephesus Think about this for just a moment. Three years with the church of Ephesus, Ephesus, teaching them the things of God and reminding the Ephesian elders these things as he was about to depart Asia Minor to Jerusalem. He's reminding them. Notice Acts chapter 20, verses 26 to 32. In Acts 20, verse 26, he says, Wherefore I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. Now what does that bring us back to? The understanding of the watchman. Paul was a watchman. And he said, Wherefore I take, to you, uh, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. 
Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost has made you overseers to feed the church of God. He's made you overseers, therefore, he's made you watchmen to feed the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock, also of your own selves. Now notice this. This is the saddest part, and it is the most prophetic part. Because he says, also of your own selves, from among your group of leaders in the church, also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. It's sad to think that this happens every day in the church. People drawing people away, gossiping, being busybodies, not really seeking after the Lord, but seeking after their own uh, interests. To draw away disciples. And then verse 31, therefore, watch. <laughs> well, what does that tell you? He says, be a watchman. Watch. And remember that by the space of three years, I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Night and day with tears. The ministry is not a club, you know, where we kind of sit around and just, you know, have a great, wonderful, joyous time. We, we, we hurt for those who hurt. We rejoice with those who rejoice because the scripture says that we can do that. But unless we hurt with those who hurt, then, you know, if, 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 if ministry burdens our hearts in such a way that it's just like, oh, can't take it, then maybe we ought not to be there. Paul wept for the church. Paul prayed for the church. Paul cared for the church because it wasn't his church, it was Jesus' church. He says, and now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all them which are sanctified. Paul was never guilty before God in fulfilling his responsibilities toward men. Remember that. Paul was never guilty before God in fulfilling his responsibilities toward men. He spoke the truths of God, even when they were unpopular, and he went against what society was promoting. Heavy doses of the New Age philosophy and pop Freudian psychology have, have crept into the church under the, the guise of promoting anything that could help people get their lives together. But what should the church trust in? And what has the church trusted in for 1,800 years before Freud? What have we trusted in? Colossians 2 verses 8 through 10 tells us, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit 
I guess that kind of spoiling can, uh, can, can work two different ways. You know, you can get spoiled like, you, like uh, so, you know, somebody's a cheap, cheaply, you know, that kind of thing. You, you can get spoiled like kids get spoiled by, you know, parents who want them to have stuff. Or it can spoil you, and this is really the whole thought, that uh, the man can be spoiled like, like, a, like a, a piece of fruit that's no good, you know, that's gotten spoiled as you're sitting around. And, uh, and so it says, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's in Jesus. In Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead. And he says, you, church, are complete. You're, you're fulfilled. You're complete, whole in him, which is the head of all principality and power. That's what we have. It's not new age te- uh, techniques. It's 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 not uh, you know Jesus calling or it's 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 not the shack okay guys I, I got I'm gonna have to warn you guys about this movie coming out called the shack it came out of a book that uh, I, I warned you a long time ago that was just uh, not to be read because first of all it was written by somebody who's uh, somebody who's a, a universalist actually the guy who wrote uh, the shack. You know, he believes in a lot of ways to the Lord. I don't know if you remember what I said on Sunday, you know, that, that we believe that there's only one God. The, the people today in, in this, you know, uh, who have put aside the word of God have said, well, there's many ways to God. No, there's only one way to God. And, and his name is Jesus. Because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3, through four, uh, 3 and 4 says, According as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue. So we have, we have by his divine power, uh, all things that pertain to life and godliness, which means, by the way, when you think of life and godliness, what do you think? Well, uh, do you all breathe? You all do breathe, right? You breathe every day. You, you got to breathe because you you know, if you don't breathe, you're going to die. You know, you got to breathe. So it's something that you just do, right? Well, life and godliness is everything you do. It has to be because of Jesus Christ. It has to be about the Lord. And he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him that has called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. That's what we have that says we don't need the New Age philosophy. We don't need Freudian psychology. We need Jesus. And he says, I am here. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Matthew chapter 11. And so the watchman of God must appeal to the people to repent of their sins. Look at verse 10. Look, going back to Ezekiel 33. Because now I've got to put it into overdrive, okay? Well, I'm not going to finish the chapter. I can tell you that right now. So we'll do our best. But verse 10 says, Therefore, O thou son of man, speak unto the house of Israel, 
Thus you speak, saying, if our transgressions and our sins be upon us, and we pine away, and then, in other words, we just die because we don't have the Lord. How should we then live? There's that phrase. How should we then live? It is important to remember that these people had been mocking and putting down and ignoring the word of God. I'm talking about the exiles that, that Ezekiel had been preaching to. They had been mocking and putting down and ignoring the word of God that was spoken by the prophets of God. But now they're seeing all that the prophets said coming to pass right before their very eyes. And they saw it as a hopeless situation for themselves. I think that might, that might relate, that, that might be something we relate to. If you remember at one time, you know, there was a time when you, you, you weren't a believer and, you know, you used to mock Christians, you used to mock what they would do. And, 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 you know, you called them all kinds of things, hallelujahs and whatever else, you know, holy rollers or whatever language you spoke. And, and, you know, you would do all these things until God got a hold of you. And when you began to see the truth of, of things, you, you look at yourself and say, man, if I, if I were to die this evening, as a matter of fact, a lot of times we would tell people, listen, where, where would you be if you died today? Where would you be tomorrow? And then all of a sudden we say, oh man, if I don't get right with God now, I'm, I'm going to be lost forever. Whew. They were seeing that, okay, wow, these prophets are true. Everything they said is true. What am I going to do? It was hopeless for them. They were pining away, which means they were ready to die. Accept their fate, as it were. Now they were just ready to give up and die. And that is a real sad perspective of God that had developed by God's people, in God's people. Unfortunately, there are people that feel the same way today. But verse 11 reveals the true heart of God. Look at verse 11. Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Now, two things. He's speaking to his own people. He's speaking to his own people who are supposed to know better. And secondly, (laughs) he cares. He cares. Turn, he says, turn ye. Consider how similar the words are to what the Lord said in chapter 18. Because in in chapter 18, verse 23 He said, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die? Have I any pleasure at all in that? So this is twice. Remember, repetition's a good teacher. Does God have pleasure in the death of the wicked? No, not at all. We don't don't have a God that sits up in heaven when, when, when wicked people die going, whoa, yeah, you know. Man, that's Hollywood. That's the Wizard of Oz. But that's not our God. He says, have I, not, have I any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, saith the Lord God, and not that he should return from his ways and live? That's what he desires. That is what he has pleasure in. 
when people come back to him. And how patient has God been? Think about that in your own life. How patient has God been? I mean, if I, if I had been me, man, I would have zapped me a long time ago. And I would have been patient if I had been God and seen me. <laughs> that, kind of, that kind of weird thought is there. <laughs> but I think you understand what I'm saying. You know, it's often said that God sends people to hell, right? A lot of people say, oh, God's going to send you to hell. No, he's not. <laughs> that's, not that's not even true. It's not biblical. God doesn't send anybody to hell. Man goes there by, by his choice, by his own choice. I mean, hell was prepared for whom? For the devil and his angels. But not us. Man goes there by choice. The Lord pleased with man pleads with man to turn from his wicked ways so that he may live but if they refuse they will die in their sins now think about this for a minute because this is the heavy part of tonight the heavy part of tonight is our God says turn and come back to me and yet our God who has that compassion for us already knows what our choice is. I, I, can't, I can't fathom that thought. I, could, I can't even put it into words. Our God is an awesome God. Because what continues to stick out in, in that whole thought is he still loves us anyway. What is most encouraging was what the Lord Jesus himself says. Matthew 18, 11, Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Beautiful thought. The Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. I was getting so excited about you know, reading these passages on, on, on Sunday morning about John and <clears throat> from, from John's gospel and, you know, quoted one time I was so excited. I said, well, this is what Jesus said, you know, to Nicodemus. <laughs> but in fact, it was John the Baptist who said it. And that's John 3.36. He that believeth on the Son has everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. You know, I quoted that last couple of weeks there in John because of the preparation of seeing Jesus' power over death. And still there were those who believed and those who didn't believe and they saw the same miracle. Yet some believed and some didn't. <laughs> the Lord has done everything possible to save man. Sending his only begotten son to pay the penalty for our sins. So if we reject that truth, we will die in our sins and we will only have ourselves to blame for where we will spend eternity. That's, that's the way it is. And there's still time. Remember I asked you all earlier, do you, do you all breathe? <laughs> if you're still breathing, there's still time. 
as long as people are breathing, there's still time. We live in a day of grace still. The Lord has done everything possible to save man. Sending his son. What else needs to be done? What else does he have to send? Verses 12 through 16, we'll, we'll close with this for today. Uh, Ezekiel 33, 12. And therefore thou, son of man, say unto the children of thy people, the righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. As for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live for his righteousness in the day that he sinneth. When I shall say to the righteous that he shall surely live, if he trust to his own righteousness and commit iniquity, all his righteousnesses shall not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he has committed, he shall die for it. Again, when I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die, if he turn from his sin and do that which is lawful and right... If the wicked restore the pledge, uh, give again that he had robbed, uh, walk in the statutes of life without committing iniquity, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of his sins that he has committed shall be mentioned unto him. He has done that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live. Now, what we find in that passage is four different situations that were dealt with in verses 12 through 16. First, the righteousness of good works... And this is verse 12, the first part of verse 12. The righteousness of good works will not save anyone if they continue in sin. The righteousness of good works will not save anyone if they continue in sin. Verse 12 says, Therefore thou, son of man, say unto the children of thy people, The righteousness of the righteous shall not deliver him in the day of his transgression. Okay, so that's pretty clear. If people claim to repent and begin to do some righteous works but still continue to disobey God, their claim is false. Their good deeds won't save them because they did not turn away from their sin. A second situation is found in the second part of verse 12. The wicked will live if they repent, both abundantly upon earth and eternally with God. It says there, uh, as, for the wicked, as for the wickedness of the wicked, he shall not fall thereby in the day that he turneth from his wickedness. Neither shall the righteous be able to live, uh, well, just that part about the wicked, okay? Uh, the wicked will live if they repent, both abundantly upon earth and eternally with God. So this isn't to say that a person must live perfectly and never sin in order to remain saved. No, uh, no one can live a perfect or sinless life. Is there anybody perfect in this place and without sin? Uh, there's none of us. We're, we, we all still fall short of the glory of God, as, as we see in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But true believers don't go about to deliberately break God's laws. We didn't get up this morning saying, think, you know, saying in our mind, you know, we're, we're combing our hair, you know, and, and saying, hey, you know, you know, I think I'll go out and, and break God's law today. Uh, we, don't, we don't think that way. We don't do that because, first of all, if we love Jesus, we, we, we actually say, Lord, I, I hope I have an opportunity to tell somebody about the Lord. You know, so that, that's more of what we think, but sometimes we may say something or do something that might offend or hurt somebody, and then we realize, oh, you know, the conviction hits our hearts, then we get on our knees, we pray, and God forgives us, and we know that, and then we stand up and, and go on. So we don't get up with the idea of wanting to hurt anyone. So we don't go out 
deliberately to, to break God's law, but the, we seek to follow the Lord's word. But if we fail, then we immediately seek his forgiveness and we repent of the sin. Now, the third situation is found in verse 13. People who trust their good works of righteousness to save them, but then turn away to live in sin and die. It says, when I shall say to the righteous uh, that he shall surely live, if he trusts to his own righteousness, he commits iniquity. All his righteousness should not be remembered. But for his iniquity that he has committed, he shall die for it. Interesting thing, because all of this points actually to some kind of legalism. And as seen earlier, good works cannot save you or make you better than others. So you would have to be right all the time. And who is? You know. But, but legal, people who are legalists, you know, they say you have to dress this way. You have to look this way. You can't do this. You can't do that. You know, can't you read the signs? Anybody remember that song from the 60s? <laughs> that was a long time ago. So, you know, you, 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 you're being told by people, you know, tell you, you come to church. Their church is even still to this day. You go in and they say, uh, next, next week when you come, you need to put a tie on. <laughs> put a tie around my head, you know. So that's not what it's about, folks. So when you think that that's righteous, you know, God's going to say, no, Sorry. You've missed the boat. The fourth situation is that wicked people who repent will be saved. That's verse 14. Again, when I say unto the wicked, thou shalt surely die if, if, if he turn from his sin and do that which is lawful or right. If the wicked restore the pledge. You know, if, in other words, because uh, um, they return what they have stolen or taken as a pledge for a loan, verse 15. Because they obey God's commandments and flee evil, and because God will not charge them with, with their past sins, for they have repented and are living a just and righteous life, then Jesus, you know, then, then that's it. But again, as we did when we were studying back in chapter 18 and all the way back to chapter 3, uh, you know, these things don't save you. These things don't save you. Belief, faith. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. The just shall live by faith. That little phrase from Habakkuk, the, the, the prophet, that has been used three other times in the New Testament, Paul mostly saying, hey, the just shall live by faith. The just shall live by faith, by trusting God. Those are the things that we have to remember here. So in closing, let me, let me just ask you to turn to Galatians chapter 3, and then we're going to go to Galatians chapter 5, and we'll close with that. But but in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, so you'll understand pretty much what these, these last four, five verses, you know, chapters 12, uh, verse, verses 12 through 16. Yeah, the last five verses. Uh, how, how they can be understood from, from, the, from the New Testament standpoint. In verse 10 of Galatians 3, it says, For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God, it is evident for, and here's that one phrase, the just shall live by faith. And the law is not of faith. Notice verse 12. The law is not of faith, but the man that doeth them shall live in them. So first, you have to come to the Lord by faith. And then as you come to the Lord by faith, you begin to live out 
in the love of God and in the love of Christ, the word of God. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 says, Stand fast therefore in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. He says, Stand fast in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. What are we free to do? We are free to do everything that gives honor and glory to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now remember, when we believe in the Lord, it is the Lord himself who has fulfilled all the law for us. All the law and the prophets, we are told, hang on those two commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength, and thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. So as we serve the Lord, Jesus Christ, he's the one who has fulfilled the law on our behalf. And we walk in newness of life, and we don't overstep and, and step on people and do all kinds of other things. Or, do, or we don't go looking for ways to kind of, uh, uh, you know, find loopholes. There are, not, there are no loopholes in the Bible. You know, you, you, you live by faith and you live in the grace of God. Uh, let's close with verses 3 through 6 of Galatians 5. For I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to do the whole law. So when, when, you, when you follow that, that particular pattern of the law, it, you know, then you have to be a debtor to the whole law. So in verse 4 he says, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, you are fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Jesus Christ neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision. It isn't about whether you do that or not. It says, but faith works by love. Faith worketh by love. Faith worketh by the love that we have been given through Christ. And, and we're, we're made perfect in the love of God and in the love of Christ. Perfect not mean that we're perfect, but we're made perfect in the sense that we're made complete and whole by the love of God. Therefore, we can walk in newness of life. We can walk with the joy of the Lord. We can walk by giving an example of that love in our life by showing that we're no longer what we were when we were in the world. Now, we are a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And we're new creatures today. Whether we've been a believer for five days or five years or 50 years, we're new creatures. And that's the evidence of what God does in our lives.